This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Happy New Year and welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast in 2019. Well, 2018 is over. We've got a new year ahead of us. What does it mean? Well, we'll find out. First things first, though. Let's check out a few new episodes of the podcast. This introduction serves both. So, what have we got? Well, the first one is an experimental episode with Gavin McCluskey, a very nice chap who got in touch when I put out the call for potential guest hosts who might like to come on and have a bit of a conversation, a bit of banter, a bit of who knows what, because really it's an exploration. And Gavin and I... Well, we explore various topics and themes, and I must confess to speaking rather a lot. Partly that's due to Gavin being inexperienced, and partly because I wasn't quite sure how to handle the the whole thing. So you'll hear me saying quite a bit about a range of issues, which may be of interest to some of you, and less to others. So it's a longish discussion, just under two hours, and we switch from the theoretical to the practical in great part, talking a lot about well, the significance and meaning of various ideas that I've been exploring over the last couple of years and very much of late. Give us some feedback if you do give that a go. Gavin, like myself, teaches English. Um, He's based in China. He's been following much of the work that I've been following um, at the non-speculative Buddhism site and also at the Dharma Overground in various other places too. So he's very familiar with the topics we've challenged over the last three years and also with the guests we've had on. Enjoy the conversation, see what you think. If you think it might be worth your own time coming on to feature as a guest host, just get in touch at my coaching email. That's O'ConnellCoaching at live.com and we'll see what we might get up to. The second episode is an interview with Dr. Mikkel Burley, or Mick as he prefers. He's based at Leeds University, teaching philosophy, uh, the philosophy of religion, and uh, he's a very interesting chap. I asked him on because he wrote a rather interesting book, which is called Rebirth and the Stream of Life, a philosophical study of reincarnation, karma and ethics. That's out on Bloomsbury and was released in 2016. It's an interesting companion piece in many ways to an earlier episode I did on reincarnation and rebirth with Jayarava. Mikkel takes a different approach, but they are, well, complementary in many ways. Now, Mick has a particular interest in the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, and we talk about him and the implications of his thought. We talk about 
rebirth, obviously, and a number of other issues. Bridging East and West, Eastern and Western philosophy, which is another area that Mick is particularly interested in. The conversation builds, warms up, and uh, we end up having some very interesting discussion in my view. Again, see what you think. If you're interested in finding more out about Mick's work, you can check out his Leeds University page. And there are a number of articles as well you might be interested in, in picking up on, and I'm going to read a couple of them just to give you an idea of the kind of things he's into. Here are a couple that you might find entertaining. Uh, mountains of flesh and seas of blood, reflecting philosophically on animal sacrifice. Eating human beings, varieties of cannibalism and the heterogeneity of human life. Wow, that's pretty far out, isn't it? Conundrums of Buddhist cosmology and psychology. Reincarnation and the lack of imagination in philosophy. If none of that gets you interested, I don't know what will. Anyway, enjoy both of our episodes. Keep in tune to the Imperfect Buddha podcast as we continue on into 2019 with the second half of our theme of addressing anti-intellectualism and engaging with academics. It's an interesting ride, it's a fun ride. Come along with us and we look forward to your keeping us company. Enjoy. A happy new year if you're listening to this after January the 1st, which you most likely will be. Now, Today's episode is a little bit different from usual. Some of you may recall that a little while back I stuck in the introduction to one of the episodes, a call for interest from folks who might like to come on and have a chat and participate in a podcast episode, much in the way Stuart might have done before he went on hiatus. Well, we had a few people get in contact and uh, one of the ones that we're going to be including in the conversation is a chap called Gavin McCluskey. And we've just met, so this is going to be a sort of free-form conversation. Although we do have some questions or ideas that we've shared beforehand. We may also get some other chaps and chapesses on the podcast at some point doing the same. So if you're interested in coming on, feel free to drop me a line at O'ConnellCoaching at live.com. And for those listening in, I hope you enjoy this slightly different conversation. Gavin. How's it going, fella? Hey, Matthew. Very good, yeah. What about yourself? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I've been eating too much for the Christmas festive period. I don't know if you had to do any of that in China, did you? Um, I didn't have to, but I certainly did partake. Yeah, I was out for a good good buffet with some friends on Christmas Day. What about you? How was, how was your Christmas Day? Well, my Christmas Day was just fine. It was the typical, I guess, a European family day. It was a, a lunch with the relatives eating too much food and the whole thing going on far too long with my son suffering quietly in the corner before disappearing upstairs to play on his brand new Xbox One. I'll just let listeners know how we're going to do this today. I mean, this is sure. really an experiment. So what I suggested to you was to send in some of the, the topics that you find personally interesting and to turn them into questions that you might address to me, which I would then give back to you. Uh, we'll start off, I suggest, with that line. And uh, if we end up going somewhere else, well, you know, that's fine too. Yeah. No, that sounds like a great way to do it. Well, the ball's in your court now then. So why don't you throw a question or two at me? Right. So, Matthew, I think this is a good one to start with. What have been some key points in your journey through Buddhism? Oh, God. 
You know, that's just the sort of question I don't like answering. <laughs> <laughs> why is that? Well, you know why? Um, it's too long. There have been too many points. Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, the other thing, I'm one of those people that, oddly enough, I don't, really, I don't really get much out of telling stories about myself. I think that people tend to have very strong myths about themselves, and they tend to tell stories much in the way that we might think of, like fairy tales or legends. One thing that happened to me in moving to Italy is some of those stories got disrupted. And in long, sort of ongoing conversations with my wife over the years, and then with my son, parents-in-law, friends, and so forth, and the fact that, as you know, as a teacher yourself, people inevitably ask, you know, what the hell are you doing in China? How did you end up in Trieste? And the stories come out. And I think at one point I realized that my stories were so formulaic, I was bored of telling them, so I decided to stop. And I decided every time somebody asked me one of those types of questions, I would look at it from the perspective of somebody else and try and tell a new kind of story. Now, this might sound odd, but I decided it was at least stimulating for me to do it in that way. I've kind of done the same thing with Buddhism. I could tell a story, but I think it's more interesting to think about what do people get out of telling certain types of stories about themselves. Have you noticed, I actually almost never, ever ask any of the guests, how did you get into Buddhism? You know, tell me um, about your different paths, about the different teachers you've worked with. I'm generally interested in what's taking place in the present. That said, I guess I could throw in a couple of very, very short responses. Since you've been interested in the work of Glenn Wallace, I will say something about that. Have you read his um, heuristic, the non-speculative Buddhism heuristic? Yes, I have read his heuristic. Yeah, so there are a couple of terms in there which I think are very interesting. And I think that's perhaps yeah. where some story about my relationship with Buddhism might get at least a little bit interesting and, and may mm, have some resonance with your own. There are two terms. The first one is anchoric loss, and the other one is aporetic dissonance, which, yes. of course, are terms that will confuse a hell of a lot of folks. If we turn them into sort of straightforward uh, English... It's basically this idea that at some point uh, a Buddhist practitioner starts to experience some sort of dissonance and confusion in relationship to Buddhism and the way Buddhism is presented. This is an experience I think that only um, folks that have spent serious time with Buddhism could experience. Yes. But it's this idea that you know, you've invested a lot of your own sense of self, oddly enough, and your own uh, sense of importance and value into Buddhism. And at some point, something starts to feel off. And this aporetic dissonance moves on to an experience called anchoric loss. And Glenn describes this as an effective condition. But it's this idea that you kind of come out the other side of this dissonance and you realize there's no going back. You've kind of lost some of the magic, some of the, the yes. love or the romantic attachment to Buddhism as, as an ideal and as a project that might somehow yes. save you from yourself. So... I'm going to suggest that that's probably the point at which I started looking outside of Buddhism, which eventually led to putting together this podcast after realizing that some of the other podcasts on offer really weren't offering much that I found stimulating. Yes. So does that, is that something you've experienced yourself? Oh, definitely. I think my first really serious encounter with Buddhism and meditation was when I did a 10-day Goenka Vipassana retreat. Hmm. When would that have been? That must be that must be going back about fifteen years now. So I did one of those, and it was pretty mind blowing. I really came out feeling so amazing, and thought I had discovered you know the key to solving all my problems in life. But so um, it didn't didn't really happen like that. Um, 
And I did do more of those retreats through the years. But uh, over time, I, I have definitely wanted to step outside those traditional systems. I also did a two, about a two-month-long Mahasi-style retreat. Hmm. Are you familiar with that approach? Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, yeah, you had Daniel Ingram on, right? He's a big fan. That's right, yeah. Uh, so I did that, and I have to say, I mean, there were some very interesting moments in that retreat. There was a lot of stuff that I enjoyed, and I did get things from it. But overall, I, found, I felt it didn't really click with me, and I had a lot of issues with a lot of the doctrine and the ideas behind the technique. For example, just before I went on that retreat, I had read a book by Chula Dasa. Are you familiar with him? Yes. Uh, the Mind Illuminated, I think, right? Yeah, isn't is the he name John, of his book. John Yeats. Yeats. Yeah, John Yeats or something like that, right? Yes. So I had read his book just before I went on retreat, and a lot of what he talks about in, uh, in, in certain parts of the book is the strange experiences that people go through, especially on retreat. You know, a, a lot of strange physical sensations, visual sensations, auditory sensations, and so on. And um, coming as well from his neuroscience background, he talks about these as basically being the result of sensory deprivation. But when you go on a Mahasi retreat, um, these kind of experiences are interpreted in very different ways. Um, if you're having experiences where, say, it feels like your body is dissolving or where there are sensations jumping around the body from one part to another, uh, these, this is seen as part of the progressive insight. Uh, you're getting insight into the dissolution of phenomena, the arising and passing of phenomena, and so on. And having having just read this book um, and having been exposed to that idea that maybe this was just sensory deprivation, it became very hard for me to think that there was any deeper meaning behind these things. So that really threw my belief in, in that particular technique's approach. I I'm, tend to be slightly wary of these um, these simplistic explanations of things. From a, a psychological perspective as well, a lot of this is just about um, the release of certain types of psycho-emotional tension. It's interesting that certain Buddhist traditions translate that in a way that fits into their worldview and their sort of metaphysical understanding of the person and the path towards some imagined goal. I think that also the sort of discounting it as just a, a consequence of sensory deprivation, I wouldn't get on board with that necessarily. I think that you might say that both of those things are possible in how you, as the person experiencing those things, might interpret them. But on the other hand, this is something that, again, someone, a group like the secular Buddhists would, would avoid at all costs, because there isn't much in the way of rational explanation that provides enough of a fit, in my view, to the complexity of these kinds of experiences. I think that one of the problems with traditional approaches is that not only do they, um, well, let's say in some traditions, have a very specific sense of the meaning or non-meaning of certain types of energetic or perceptual experience, um, but they often don't have methods for actually working with it or dealing with it. So, you know, sometimes the idea is you, ju you just sit. Okay, so I've got a pain in my body. Well, just keep sitting. And I think that's where some of the traditions, the slightly more esoteric traditions, and perhaps some of the Tibetan Buddhist traditions as well start to offer something that's a little bit more interesting. Ken McLeod as well, for example, who's obviously quite well known for having done two, three year long retreats, which is, I mean, it's just mental in my view, especially in this day and age. But one thing he noticed is that his body basically on the second one just said stop. I think I, I read that, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a story he shared in a few places, but 
Yes. What I liked is that the fact that he learned from that, that you actually have to do quite a lot of work on the body and you have to work with energy, whatever we want to call that. He um, started running retreats after that, which included things like Qigong and, you know, stretching, Tai Chi, this kind of thing. And although I think sometimes that can drift towards a sort of chuck a bit of everything in just to keep people happy, I think at the same time, as well as not just being another yoga retreat, it does acknowledge the fact that once you start going into um, very deep levels of meditative practice, certain unpredictable things do take place. And it's actually very useful to have a set of, of keys or techniques or, or means for working with that. I think we've had um, the first phase of, of understanding that has been the sort of the, the spread of psychotherapists in American Buddhism, which of course has had other consequences, which someone like David Chapman defines negatively. But on the positive side, I'd say that's actually very, very useful because, I mean, let's be honest, if you start sitting and going on even 10-day retreats with the, uh, the Goenka folks, a lot of stuff can go on. I did, I did a, a couple of Goenka retreats years ago, and I remember um, the first one I did, at the end of it, you know, when you finally get to speak to people and actually figure out who are these teachers uh-huh. and stroke assistants, that none of them really have much in the way of experience. <laughs> no, almost almost right. none of them had any teaching experience whatsoever or knew anything beyond the dogma of Goenka. Oh, this is the, one of the uh, huge problems with the Goenka system. I, I, I really have issues with it. But at the same time, you know, just to play the, uh, the devil's advocate, mm. it brings up other questions. If you have another type of question, then the Goenka organization is a good response. If your question is, how do we provide extremely low-cost, freely accessible <laughs> meditation practice yes. all over the world with a minimum sure. dogma, then Goenka is kind of the answer to that question, right? There are good and bad sides, yeah. definitely. Yeah, it's not just that. It's actually about what kind of question is Goenka response to? And then is it possible to have a response to that question? That takes care of some of the concerns that someone like yourself might have. Mm-hmm. And there's a good question. That's one that people probably should be thinking about. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I strongly suspect that a lot of the traditional understandings of how things work are flawed, but I'm, I'm equally open to the idea that a lot of the way that we understand it today is also wrong. Um, I don't by any means think that just because we live in this scientific age that we have all the answers. I'm sure that a lot of the scientific research that's going on about meditation at the moment will look quite ridiculous, hopefully anyway, in 20 years or 30 years, say the excessive focus on uh, spots in the brain, what's happening there and so on. Not very embodied and not very environmentally situated, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, but I'm very interested in the tensions between the way that tradition often seems to view things in terms of intellectual understanding. Um, If you look at, again, traditions like Mahasi, ideas like the progressive insight, you're familiar with that, right? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. This kind of idea that you're going through this path and you have these experiences, you attend to these experiences and get insight into the nature of reality. I think that if you do some other kind of just purely physical practice, let's say something like, Wim Hof method or the Buteyko, I don't know about the correct pronunciation there, B-U-T-E-Y-K-O. These kind of techniques that work just with breathing often claim to lead to very similar results, calm, insight, all these things without having any actual focus whatsoever on any 
sense that there's a deeper understanding into, into reality that's happening. It's just purely seen as physiological changes from breath. Mm-hmm. And I'm very sympathetic with those ideas. I think that, that, that it, most of what happens is just happening on the physical level. I think that a lot of the systems that are there in different traditions, you know, you're given something to pay attention to during meditation. It probably doesn't really matter that much what you're, what you're focusing on. It's just maybe a distraction for the mind helps you get into deeper breathing cycles and so on. And that's where a lot of the benefits come from. I, I definitely do tend towards that way of thinking these days. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think it's a tricky it's a tricky topic to respond to. Let's talk about martial arts just for a moment. They have this conversation about a topic which we don't really we don't really have a rational response to, I don't think which is this notion of energy. And if you look at certain schools of Buddhism, they tend to ignore this to some degree, whereas others tend to consider it to be you know, the major, major practice. As many listeners will know, my practice background spans most of the traditions, but is most firmly rooted in Tibetan Buddhism. And because of the shamanic stuff as well, I mean, when we talk about ideas like energy, intellectually, I understand this is a problematic term. And then experientially, you know, I don't have a problem with it whatsoever because I think that anybody can recognize different areas or different moments in their lives where they feel or they experience a higher degree of, let's say, bodily energy at a lower level. Mm -hmm. We can start off with a very simple uh, analogy, you know, just being exhausted after work, right? Mentally, you can't think straight. Sure. Um, You don't have the energy to go out and have fun. You know, it's difficult to engage with other people. If you have sex, maybe it's not as stimulating as it should be, or it becomes a means to sort of unwind or get rid of some tension in your body. At that point, we're already having a conversation about energy levels, right? Yes. We're already having a conversation about some degree of vitality. And yet, uh, philosophically, what do we say about that? And then rationally and logically, what do we say about that? We're kind of left to our own devices. And I think this is a conversation topic that we can't have certain types of rational conversations about at the moment but we may be able to at some point. And they're very, very loaded. My view of practice is, is not based on the sort of uh, traditions that you've mentioned so far, which tend to have this idea of a path where there's a beginning and an end, and you move towards uh, some defined or undefined outcome. Well, you know, if you take a tradition like Zen, or if you take a tradition like the Mahamudra, Dzogchen, or the non-dual traditions, or various other practices, you know, from the Sufi tradition as well, then the concept of what it means to do something like spiritual practice starts to change quite radically. And that tends to disrupt the sort of ideas we have about the fact that, you know, some of the phenomenon or the phenomena that appear within meditation practice, are they signs of some sort of progress or not? Well, progress towards what? What's the outcome? Why is it desired? What's it for? And who gets it? If we go back to a different kind of view of what a path might be, then it could be instead based on a process relational ontology instead of a subject-object split, which, you know, posits the idea that I'm here, the world is out there, etc., etc. Then in that case, Mm -hmm. it's like, what's actually going on? Well, the quality of my relationships, as any married person knows, is determined to some degree by levels of fatigue, levels of clarity, levels of honesty, and levels of honesty about how you relate to your own emotional selfhood and the degree to which you can express that to another person. Now, we can talk about that rationally. We can come at that from a nice psychological interpretation of what emotions are, how we should think about them, the best way to deal with them. We can find, you know, as you well know, tons of self-help books which tell us this method, that method, this key, that key. 
to how to yes. be emotionally mature and stable. And yet, depending on the Buddhist tradition you're in, they'll negate that. They'll talk about emotional energy as good or bad. And then you get to these tantric traditions, which recognize that energy is a fundamental facet of consciousness and the quality of consciousness you have. Therefore, if you're sat in a retreat, just to bring this back a little bit better to what you were saying before, and you're experiencing immense tension in your chest, then perhaps you actually need to work with your more easily identifiable emotions. Mm. And actually they can then become the means for some kind of personal transformation that leads to a better capacity to actually relate to the world more openly, more consciously, and with less suffering both for yourself and others. What's the point there? Well, there are a number <laughs> of points. But one point is that there's this tension that lies between the desire for simplicity, and that includes theoretical interpretation, whether Western or Eastern or other, and the inevitable complexity of the human condition. Some of the problems that people have found with some of the, the earlier traditions of Buddhism and their interpretations, um, whether that becomes you know, different forms of Buddhist modernism in terms of Goenka or Mahasi Sayadaw, mm. actually what we're seeing is a demand from the kinds of experiences that Westerners are having in taking up those traditions to think more clearly about what's actually going on, uh, to what degree such practices are effective or not, and really what sort of questions they bring up in terms of what we need to be thinking about in order to resolve some of those tensions and issues. But one thing I would, I would say just to round off is that although I'm highly sympathetic to a material reading of all of this, mm. I think that it's inadequate once you start talking about long-term practice. That's a great question in itself to be had. <laughs> I don't it have is. the answers. But the question of energy and, and what that means and what emotions are, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't go away. And I would, you know, invite any of our, you know, thoroughly materialist, skeptical, rationalist, atheist listeners to come up with an answer or a response to that kind of issue that satisfies the needs of a practitioner when they come up against those kinds of issues. What do you call, Matthew, that guy, um, He's a philosopher, I think, and he writes about Buddhism. Is he called Evans? So Evans something. Evan Thompson. He wrote a book. Evan Thompson, right? Um, the, the, the guest we had on a, a few months back. Yeah, you had him. You had him on a while ago, right? Sleeping. Yeah. What was his Evan, book called? Evan Thompson. Sleeping, dreaming, oh, waking, something Ooh, like that, right. right? Yeah, that's right. That was the one. Yeah, that's that's one of them for sure. Well, I, well, I remember that I read an article by him in, I think it was one of David McMahon's compilations, mm. or collections of articles. And where he talked about this way that we, we have this thing where we want to break reality down into some level of description that is more ultimate than others, but that ultimately you really can't do that. Re reality is always a bunch of different levels of description that are interacting with each other and can't really be reduced mm -hmm. to one or the other. So I think that, yeah, that's part of it. And another really important part of it is that just as humans... And when we're trying to make sense of our experience, we need to focus, we do need to simplify it in our own minds in, in ways. We, we need to t try and focus on one particular thing. When you're meditating, you could focus on emotions, you could focus on physical sensations and so on. So I think there's a tendency when we do that, and especially with practices that tend to focus on one particular thing. Let's say Goenka is really obsessed with the body scan and paying attention to variations in physical sensations, 
it's very easy to forget that you're working within a very narrow band of focus and to forget that there are so many other ones out there and that your experience would be completely different if you were attending to those. You know, as I was listening to you then, we're reminded constantly of the fact that in many ways we lack, at least in the West, we lack um, a sophisticated enough apparatus of description to actually come to terms with the, the 2,000 plus years of different Buddhist traditions. And they're often very, very sophisticated understanding of, of what's taking place in an, in an individual phenomenologically as they work with these kinds of practices. My view of the history of Buddhism is that traditions evolve and change not just for social, political and cultural reasons, but they also evolved as an attempt to respond effectively to the limitations of pre-existing practices, which is, you know, one of those sort of politically incorrect things that we might say, mm. because it denounces this sort of idea that, you know, all practices and traditions are ultimately equal, and therefore we should <laughs> not judge them, which, you know, is obviously, a, as it's say in Italian, a cazzata. It's nonsense. Does that mean bollocks? Okay, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, got, you got the flavor of it from the tone. <laughs> but um, that, that kind of politically correct thinking tends to stullify the sort of creative demands of thinking afresh about these topics. That's what I really appreciate about what, what people like you and Glenn are doing, just be, being willing to question these sacred cows. Yeah, I think a lot of people misunderstand the reason for doing that as well. It's not, it's not just to shit on what pre-exists. Well, there is a bit, there is a bit of that probably, you know, that punk element. You know, there's maybe a need to be different. There's a need to be a bit of a rebel. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that that is there in Glenn. I think he's mentioned it himself. Right. I think he talked about that at times. Okay. The point of all this is the the heavy lifting of, of real sustained exploration and deep thinking about the significance of what it means to take on board something like a Buddhist belief or practice and then take that Buddhist belief or practice outside of the Buddhist tradition. There's still not enough of that going on in my view. And it's certainly not sufficient to the point where we are capable of, of handling some of the, the other end challenges of what it means to come out the other side of, say, 20 years of practice and actually be able to make sense of that. I've often um, had these conversations with friends of mine over here that one of the, the great problems, not just of Buddhism, but many of these different types of traditions, is that there's a real lack of what we might say feedback or effective feedback for Buddhist teachers and long-term practitioners. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a huge dearth of it. Um, and what happens? You know, Buddhist teachers basically, they kind of find themselves in a, in a bind. You know, I carry on producing tradition. I go off and do my own thing, which ends up becoming very much my own thing. How do we create or how do we um, encourage a community of folks who are capable of reflecting and thinking critically about their own practices in a way that is aware of the wider issues taking place in society, but also in fields of different kinds of thought? I, I think this is a brilliant point. It reminds me, one of the things that I want to talk with you about today on the podcast is, as teachers, how our teaching has influenced our Buddhism or vice versa. Um, if I think back on Goenka retreats or uh, the Mahasi retreat that I did, you know, there's nothing at the end where you fill out a form and give some feedback, what worked for you, what didn't, the sort of thing that we would do as English teachers with our students. And I think that is really lacking. If you look at the tradition, I think this is one of the examples of how the veneration of the master and so on is 
holding the tradition back. There could be so much gained by taking these more modern approaches, teachers uh, being willing, instead of just being the ones who lay down the law and sagely give students advice, actually really uh, understand that their students could potentially give them amazing feedback that would really change the way they do things. Hmm. I would love to see that. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think again of this idea of the revealed truth and the fossilization mm. of tradition within an ideal that's based on some sort of better past in which the tradition was at its peak. Right, People yes. knew how to do things and we need to return there. Right. Which, uh, which is part of the fantasy, I think, and one of the great failings of, of secular Buddhism. <laughs> you know. the, 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 the obsession with early Buddhism, yeah? Yeah, yeah, the obsess- plus the, yes. I, the idea that you can somehow get back to the earliest teachings of the Buddha and there you will find, yes, yes, you yes, will find yes. you know, the unadulterated, unmudded, unstained, straightforward, rational, <laughs> easily digestible and manageable set of teachings and practices that is truly suitable to the West. <laughs> yeah, it's an odd um, fantasy it's a very odd one I, I, I don't quite get it it really is I, I think that a lot of it comes I mean if you think about people's uh, first experiences say doing something like a Goenka retreat when I became when I started to think more critically about Buddhism and started to question some of the ideas in the in the Goenka style and discussed it with some of my friends who had done Goenka retreats I realized that they had just really soaked up everything Goenka said with no critical thought about it whatsoever. You know, well, what do you mean? Of course, you know, you don't believe Goenka that this is the original meditation technique taught by the Buddha. But look, you know, you got such great results from the course. It must be true, blah, blah, blah. I think that people people do often have a very powerful experience on these uh, first retreats that they do. And they really suspend their, their critical judgment. People who normally would be extremely critical about things are willing, and, and you have to be willing to an extent. You get exposed to new ideas, you've got to give something a try. But there's definitely far too little critical thinking, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's a reminder too of the fact that if you go for 10 days on retreat, I mean, if it's not producing some strong degree of destabilization to the sort of normalcy of your way of being in the world, mm. then whether the retreat is good or bad, I mean, something something's up. Mm. That's one of the good things about retreat when it's managed well, is that it should destabilize what for you is normal. And if I was going to talk about the poverty of practice, I would suggest that actually that may be one of the biggest gains possible from undertaking certain types of practice, that it does give you the possibility experientially of occupying a new kind of space of being. And again, if we take that not as progress on a path to some imagined end, but actually something that's situated within a a process relational ontology, Mm. it actually becomes far more interesting, which is to say that the retreat is not some piece in a 20-year program of trying to get enlightened or trying to make some progress on a path, but it's actually a fully valid experience in itself that needs to be explored more effectively and with a a more mature degree of support on the part of the the teacher or preferably the group of teachers or support crew that are there to help people do something meaningful with those 10 days. And I think in that case, the retreat doesn't necessarily matter really whether it's 10 days, you know, one month or one day or half a day. It's like, what's the purpose of it? And one of the things I've experimented with in some of the retreats I've done on my own 
but also some of the the one day or weekend retreats I've done with with students in Trieste is actually take that kind of approach. Think of that retreat space as a kind of container, and it's a container in which possibilities emerge. And the practices are there in service to the individual who's exploring the possibility of destabilizing the, norm- the normalcy of their day-to-day existence. Mm. And here we kind of come back to what's possible. And if we move away from this sort of fossilized model of prescribed teaching of practice with a very clear set of goals that were achieved once upon a time by somebody who knows where and whether they existed, then actually it's like, you can take a, a menu of possibilities which can be expanded or shrunk down as necessary, depending on the maturity and the experience of the person or the group, and say, well, actually, what are we going to do with this this container of experience? Yeah, How are we going to work with it? Yes. I know that um, Vince Horn and Kenneth Folk have been exploring some of their own practices, these noting-style practices in couples and in groups. I think that's a good thing with that kind of right. practice. I think that can be productive. Sure. Or have you heard of Gregory, Gregory Kramer? No, haven't heard of him. Uh, you, you're definitely like, I think, a book by him called Insight Dialogue. So he does these retreats. I haven't done one, but I read his book and I've done a little bit of this kind of practice with friends informally, people meditating together and then interspersing meditation sessions with dialogue sessions where you get paired with a stranger and a topic is given and someone is, has more of the listener role and someone has more of the speaker role. Um, I think that that, yeah, that brings the openness that allows new things to happen. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah. We need more of that. I think, you know, that's not stop there. Let's just keep going and (laughs) let's encourage Buddhist teachers to, to keep experimenting. And sure. I think in some ways, these Buddhist traditions, it's, it's a little bit like the the criticism that was leveled against uh, Freudianism, um, that it's, it's unscientific because it's unfalsifiable. Anybody who criticized uh, Freud's ideas was said to be uh, repressing things. They didn't want to face up to the truth and so on. There was nothing really that could, fa- that could falsify Freudianism. So a lot of these uh, meditation practices, it's just like the answers are already there. If you take something like the Mahasi thing, just everything, every experience that a meditator has will somehow be shoehorned into these stages. And there's nothing that could happen that that would question those so there's no no more room for growth in the tradition it's completely stagnant in my view Mm. this disturbs me (laughs) (laughs) but of course we need a balance right it's not to say that there aren't good things yeah yeah and things do develop over time you look at traditional culture you know they got all this really beautiful architecture let's say in china through having a respect for tradition and building very 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 slowly building upon tradition so things do happen like that. But as you say, also in Buddhism, you get these ruptures from time to time. Zen was a really good example. I think we're in one of those moments right now. Yeah, it does bring us back to a question that, that popped up earlier, which is the relationship between institutional organization, the dissemination of teaching, and the organization of structures that do provide a basis for people to access some kind of practice. And then the needs of individuals and groups to to innovate and do things differently. That interests me to one degree because I'm always interested in the relationship between you know larger movements of change, larger groups of um, social forms and structures which form the individual, 
and then the individual's quest and right, in a sense, to honour their own individual expression, their own desires, their own impulses, and so forth. Yes. Why am I saying this? Because as somebody who's been quite critical of Western Buddhism, I'm also aware of the reason, perhaps, why it's developed in the way it has. And I think we can take a sympathetic reading of that as much as a critical one. It's one of those reasons I, I, I keep mentioning, you know, let's, let's put together creative and critical. Why? Well, one reason is that we can avoid just shitting and poo-pooing on things we think at a certain moment in our lives are not very good. Mm. Because, you know, as somebody who's you know, a similar age to me, you know, you get to a certain age and you gain a certain kind of perspective and it's no small thing to, to gain that. And it's very easy to look back and say, well, you know, my, my more impulsive, less mature or less... <laughs> you know, open self back then in his 20s or 30s, actually, yeah, you know, good. That was good energy there, right? Just to use that term again. That was good motivation and that was a great desire that drove me to behave in that certain kind of way. But I can also appreciate why certain types of American teachers in their 60s might actually seek to stabilize tradition, might seek to produce a legacy which they can leave behind, which will guarantee to some degree reasonably effective means for helping some people. And that brings up a challenge to this whole idea of renovating tradition, um, bringing in new life, uh, bringing in new perspective and creating effective change. Because if I'm going to use your analogy that you picked up before about teaching, you're absolutely right. Um, And this is something I spoke to Glenn about the last time he was on the podcast about translating certain educational practices into the realm of Dharma teaching. And yet at the same time, the effectiveness of better monitored teaching, um, continuous professional development, feedback from students, monitoring of the, the teaching process itself, the introduction of seeking out meaningful goals, examination, certification, all of that obviously has a positive side. But on the negative side, it feeds into this, what I would say, this dehumanization of the teacher and the student the excessive of both. And what we might say is a sort of, you know, totalitarian spread. I'm definitely not suggesting Ofsted inspections for uh, Buddhist teachers here, Matthew, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I would be no fan fan of that. No, and for American teachers, I don't know what that is. It's, you know, government-controlled inspections of schools, which have caused immense stress. I, I wouldn't want to teach in Britain. For many reasons, but that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that impulse is there, right? And I mean, the point being that there is no perfect outcome. I mean, I have these discussions with people both on the podcast and off, and there are certain assumptions which underlie some of the content of the conversation. And one of them is is perhaps an un, uncritically held, it's, I don't even know if it's, 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 it's a fully conscious thought, but it's this kind of assumption that at some point we'll get the best answers or sometimes we'll get the best mm-hmm. formulation of a given tradition. And my view increasingly is that that's just not possible. And uh, if we take seriously you know, a perspective that's based in imminence and finitude, then it's absolutely not possible, which means that we're always to some degree working with different types of tensions And those Mm -hmm. should remind us, as well as inform us, of the types of questions we should be bringing up and the kinds of things that we need to be paying attention to and remembering to pay attention to when we get seduced into comfortable lines of inquiry and practice. That's huge, you know. I mean, that, that relates to other bigger questions about what it means to base our sense of collective identities in different models of 
selfhood, but also, you know, social selfing. And it makes me think of someone again like, uh, you know, a Jordan Peterson versus mm-hmm. uh, a Zizek or a right, right. Islamic uh, Christian country with its very interesting history and a country like, you know, China or Japan or Thailand. Yes. And in how, you know, they, they view what's the project of our existence. Is it to better ourselves? Is it to make the most of what we've got? Is it to mm. live in some sort of perpetual present? Or is it to try and manifest heaven on earth? If you look at the, the Shambhala tradition, for example, you could argue that that is a sort of amalgamum of various different types of, of metaphysical worldviews. But one of them resonates very strongly with the Judeo-Christian view of trying to produce heaven on earth. Right. You know? Um, and if we look at the sort of Mahasi Sayadaw, Sayadaw traditions, or the earlier Buddhist traditions, they're not interested in that kind of project at all. Yes. Jayarava posted a tweet this morning. He's always got good stuff to say. I actually met him years ago in Cambridge. Oh, really? Yeah, we, 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 we met up um, through the internet and we ended up meeting up for a coffee and uh, had a chat about Buddhism. It was very, he was a very nice guy. Yeah. I don't know if he was blogging already at that time. This is quite a long time. This is 10 years ago. I guess he was, right? Yeah, I think he was then. Okay, I found the tweet. <laughs> Jayarava tweeted three hours ago that the goal of Buddhism is to entirely eliminate sentient life on Earth in order to prevent <laughs> suffering. <laughs> I like that, yes. That's fantastic. And, you know, <laughs> if that doesn't make you think about what, what the hell is the goal of Buddhism, I, you know, I think you're distracted and you're not paying attention. But Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting. Um, I mean, recently... Here in China, I don't really use Facebook very often, but we have the Chinese equivalent is WeChat. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, no. You have a similar kind of thing, feeds from your friends, and there are different groups and stuff. There are a few groups that I'm in that are related to self-help and things like that. And you get people you know, posting these kind of pictures or whatever, where the, the, over, the overriding message is this very much neoliberal agenda of don't worry about changing the world, just work on yourself. This has become so toxic to me now. It's something that I didn't really see as a very pernicious thing. Um, Years ago, I would probably have agreed with it to a large extent, but I've been thinking a lot about that. Recently, it seems people completely overlook the monastic tradition. I mean, the monastic tradition is a, a recognition on a really deep level that the structures that people live within affect massively their their lives, their practice, their potential for development. It really blows my mind that there's so little regard for changing society in current Buddhist circles. Most of them, obviously there's the engaged Buddhists, but the vast majority are really fixated on forget about the world, work on yourself. I think though that reminds us that the, the Buddhist project from the get-go had very little interest in that kind of project. And I think that brings up a challenge. It, it's not necessarily just something to critique, you know, condemn and try and work against. If you look at mindfulness practice, I mean, we're still not having, in my view, the right kind of conversation about it. We, we still, it still gets pushed as something that's secular and not truly Buddhist. And yet, you know, mindfulness is, is very early meditative Buddhist practice, which was carried out by very, very few people in very, very specific, strict settings. Mm. And we haven't really understood the consequences, not only the psychological and emotional consequences of carrying out those practices without the kind of 
um, let's say, mature support of somebody who knows what takes place when you start really focusing in narrowly or openly on certain aspects of your experience of being in the world. But we also haven't had a fully critical understanding or discussion about the consequences of taking those kind of practices which were developed in those kind of contexts and then just sort of mass applying them across broad spectrums of different social contexts without really understanding, ah, those practices were designed for this kind of purpose in that kind of context yes, and with that kind of worldview. This is one of the reasons why I mentioned um, both in a, a piece of writing I did on neoliberalism and Buddhism, but also brought it up in a couple of discussions on the podcast. When practice is viewed as value neutral in that way, it always ends up becoming a signifier or a placeholder for the dominant ideology, which you yes. rightly reminded us is, is neoliberalism. And actually, that yeah. brings us back to the question before, well, so what are you going to replace it with? What's going to be your, your new worldview? What's going to be your new metaphysics for placing or locating that kind of practice? And what will be the consequences of doing that too? I keep playing the devil's advocate more and more on <laughs> in these conversations mm -hmm. because I think that it's easy for me just to say what I know and what I've observed and what I've written about. But what I find more interesting is where does it take us once we've accepted that, digested it, and said, okay, what's next? Mm. And why is that the case? And what's the payoff? A critical reading, like a secular reading, quickly becomes fossilized itself. And so if that becomes part of the thinking, the status quo thought that we are sharing amongst ourselves in our little groups, and I think we've already descended into a form of poverty of thought. I mean, you know, if we take something like Glenn's thought, we don't want to turn that into a form of doctrine. Sure. It needs to become the basis for thinking alive, thinking afresh, and finding, a, uh, let's say, a living means for thinking critically about the consequences yes. of this excessive focus on the individual. Yes. And neoliberalism. And then what's next? There's a danger too, though. Um, wasn't part of the problem with the Occupy technique, or sorry, the Occupy movement, that uh, they were so obsessed with this, this sort of monitoring of things and stopping it turning into hierarchies and so on, that, that in the end nothing got done. It, it became a bit navel-gazing. <laughs> Could go that way too. That's, again, a great reflection of the fact that Occupy Wall Street was itself a product of neoliberalism just as, you know, mindfulness right, yeah. is, and, and just as the, this sure. is something you mentioned in one of your emails, this, this quantified self, which mm. I find hilarious. <laughs> right, right. Quantified self. Who's quantifying what and to what end, and where are you going to go with that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, self-improvement is, is great, and this brings us back to the, 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 the point I made before. If there is no final perfect answer, then what are we doing? Do we come back to ethics? And, you know, the question of, well, how do we make the most or how do we actually do the best with what are the real circumstances of our existence? I, I, I wouldn't pretend to, to come to some final conclusion, which is going to be, you know, the sort of the nail on the head, the saving grace, mm. the final re response to these types of questions. I just think my job, in a sense, in terms of theory as a living practice and as part of my Buddhist practice, if I want to use that term, is to keep thinking critically and creatively about all of these topics. And the one that's just come up again, which is in the background and was in the, the conversation with Zachary Walsh as well, is how do we navigate the tensions between the individual practitioner and the goal of being present to the world 
and how that might find itself manifest in a, a process relational ontological view. And then the fact that we recognize that the Judeo-Christian worldview for all of its faults actually did give rise to many of the political positives that we see, yes. such as democracy and emancipation for women and you know homosexuals and, and the stuff that's taking place right now. So my view is that all of that could actually be brought, in, brought into an individual and a social practice, um, but it would require us to keep renewing our capacity to engage openly and creatively with these, with these forms. And that would yeah. include inclusivity of the sort that's very much resisted by many on the far left at present and also on the far right. Right, right. Which, as you well know, I've, I've critiqued and will continue to do so. And I think does in many ways involve the sort of um, fragmentation into ever smaller cliques of the pure and the righteous and the just. Exactly. Yeah. Even though definitely myself, I lean more towards the left. It's it's really obvious at the moment that it's exacerbating the problem with this, you know, high moral tone. That's not going to win the war. And that high moral tone has been argued by folks like Jonathan Haidt, who I don't know if you. You've I haven't heard, heard of work. him. Oh, Jonathan Haidt is great. I mean, he's sort yeah. of locked in with this uh, intellectual dark web lot. He's just a, a, a really, really intelligent person who's also extremely kind. And he's learned how to be kind towards all of these different manifestations of the sort of social justice warrior, outright sort of dichotomy that we're currently living through. And he's, uh, if I remember, he's a social scientist who has written a book about some of the dysfunctional characteristics of the, the social justice warrior culture in a way that's not dismissive, um, that's basically rooted in an, uh, a desire to understand it as comprehensively as possible and to right. remind some of the outrage victimhood culture that actually that's not going to work for you long term, <laughs> as is yeah. obvious. And in fact, maybe they, they, they could marry or they could attempt to marry some of their, their interesting, I mean, if we're going to be generous, a lot of the thought that's driving the sort of um, the ideological norms or axioms of much of the the social justice warrior movement at present would be really, really well uh, supported by stoicism. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why they couldn't use that as a sort of a, a basis for managing their own neuroses and <laughs> their, their worldview of, of victimhood. The point I'm making here again is that we live in a sort of rich tapestry of possibilities of different types of thought. If there is no one final answer, then what we have is uh, a rich history, a rich intellectual history that covers the whole span of the globe. And each of those different types of thought and practice can actually just be brought into relationship with each other. And that kind of cross-pollination, cross-semination of different types of thought and practice may actually be the best way for us to go in all of the different disciplines that we're, we're currently looking at certainly in the humanities, but also in, in, in the sort of local individual practice of Buddhism or some other type of thing, because that's where I think the interesting thought is taking place. And if you think about the language I'm using in my conversation with you, that's, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm yeah. resisting the temptation to say, ah, you know, Glenn's thought is the answer. Yes. Or rationality is the answer. Or a brain scan is the fucking answer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I don't know about you. I mean, I find myself every time I'm reading someone, I, I usually find myself agreeing with them. You know, people are very persuasive. And then maybe you'll go like, for example, Jordan Peterson, I, I, I really enjoyed his book. 
Um, later, I, I read it again. I thought a bit more critically about it. I had a few issues with it and watched a few videos critiquing it online. And so I think that as humans, we always need to do this kind of thing. If, if we're going to be exposed to new thought, we need to have an openness towards it. We need to want to be persuaded by it and allow it in a little bit. And only when we've done that, can we then turn around and say, okay, well, let me now, let me now think a little bit more critically about this. But I think in the early stages, we need to be as open as possible. Yeah. 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 And I, and I really agree as well with just mentioning Jordan Peterson. It's, I find the way that he's been demonized and because I'm a guardian reader, I love the guardian. They have such a, I feel distorted view of him that is really unfair. So that's an example of this, this, this kind of thing that is, that is really exacerbating the problem because then you get the sort of hard, hardcore Jordan Peterson fanboys who just go, okay, well, fuck the guardian. You know, they've got nothing to say, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's very, very damaging. And there we see the consequences of identity politics, right? Exactly. something else out of you. Yes, sure. Right. Okay. Let's have a look. There are a few things that we've gone into here actually already. So I'm just taking a look through. How easy has it been to maintain a practice over the years? What kind of doubts have arisen? How did you get through them? If you got through them? Ooh, okay. It depends how you define practice, right? Mm -hmm. I first meditated when I was nine or 10 with my mother and her spiritualist group called the White Eagle Lodge. Sounds like a cult if ever there was one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I've never thought about it in that way. Um, and it may be right. to some degree, although I'm pretty sure they don't expect you to give up money. I was going to say, right. That seems to be the main definition these days. It's weird, actually. The, the White Eagle Lodge is interesting because it combines a certain sort of new interpretation of Christianity, in particular, you know, love, unconditional love and meditation practice, and the idea that there's this disembodied being who's a cross between a Christian and a Native American, you know, medicine man or shaman, who transmitted teachings to, if I remember the names correctly, a lady called oh. Grace Cook. Anyway, if anybody has read any of these books about the relationship between spiritualism, Buddhism, um, and different forms of alternative spirituality in the last century in the UK, they'll probably find something uh, interesting there. But anyway, the first Buddhist book I think I came across, I must have been 14, and I think I probably attempted to meditate on my own at that age. In terms of actually engaging with organized Buddhism, that started when I was 19, and I guess I've been practicing on and off ever since. So I'm 42, what's that, 23 odd Right, years. okay. But again, what, is, what does it mean? Because I find it interesting, people say, you know, I've been practicing for 25 years, I've been doing this for 35 years. What do you mean, and why is that important? Exactly. So it might, it, here's something that might be worth talking about, and it relates slightly to some of what we were talking about before, marginally, but to some degree. Or my attraction to practice has always been the desire for very strong mm. experience. And I think that explains partly my original and ongoing attraction towards certain styles of practice that come out of Indian and Tibetan right. Buddhism, which are less sort of puritanical, it was basically re-reading re the Lord of the Rings and wanting to be Gandalf or something, right? <laughs> I think a lot of us probably have that kind of thing coming out of those teenage years. 
Right, yeah. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that might have been the case that that might have been what led me to Tibetan Buddhism theoretically at the beginning. Mm. But then I got distracted, you know, I, I think from what uh, 16 to 19 was the period where I was doing a lot of recreational drugs, mm-hmm. a lot of ecstasy. Sounds familiar, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> but not with that particular one, but I was, I was pretty into mushrooms around that age, yeah. Right. This is slightly personal, and it's, it's the one point I'll add in, because I think it describes some of the ways I approach Buddhism today and think about some of these materials. I was always the one that, you know, journeyed more intensely and higher than all of my friends, right. crashed and burned more fully too. I would be what you described yes. as a rather sensitive child from that perspective. And so I went to Buddhism at 19 after really going through an extremely, extremely negative trip and not right. being able to take right. any more recreational drugs. And I guess I wasn't thinking along those yeah. lines of, you know, I want to reproduce those experiences. But I think that was part of the motivating factor. Very similar maybe for me, and I hadn't thought about it before as well, because I also had a very bad trip around the age of, I, think, I can't remember now, maybe 19 or something, 18, and I stopped taking psychedelics at that. after that. Um, well, I'd continued to take them for a while, but every time I just always had part of the trip that was bad, and the bad part kept getting bigger and bigger. Eventually, I thought, I just don't want to do this anymore. And it was actually around that time or shortly after that I, I, I started getting more into meditation and also started to, re- I read my first book on Buddhism, which was uh, good old Sogyal. What's the name of that book? The, the, um, the book of living and dying. The Tibetan book of living and dying. Yeah. A masterpiece, apparently. <laughs> if only he'd written it himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turns out he probably didn't write the old, the old perv. Oh uh, yeah. I really enjoyed your podcast episode about cults actually. Yeah. Yeah. We enjoyed it too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could really tell you guys were digging it yeah um i mean we're slightly going off here but that's another thing that i don't know if you'd like to talk about it now um it's just been one scandal after another that has really really dented my belief in enlightenment uh, that might be something that would be interesting to talk about how much to what extent you still believe in these ideas yeah 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 although i don't think belief is necessarily important at that mm. point we can make a connection here then between the question you asked before and then moving on to that kind of discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the point of mentioning this desire for peak experience? I think that that itself betrays an obvious answer to the question of, of whether a person believes or entertains the idea of some form of enlightenment. Because obviously enlightenment is the, the ultimate peak experience, right? Sure. At least that's what it's been promised as by, <laughs> by some teachers, yes. some books and different practice traditions. And certainly, I think the Tibetan Buddhism, where Sogyal obviously comes from, certainly is guilty of that kind of salesmanship. I think I've described enlightenment in the past as basically a sales technique to try and promote one Buddhist tradition over another. And that's, I think, a Mm -hmm. a fair claim, historically Mm -hmm. speaking, that that has certainly gone on. If we look at the history of Tibetan Buddhism, for example, in its desire or its need for patronage, like all religion, then certainly selling certain kinds of outcomes or ideals becomes a, a necessary part of survival. Yeah. And again, that's, I would suggest, a sympathetic reading. But it does produce unintended consequences, and I think Sogyal is one of those. I don't want to view practitioners as victims, and therefore Sogyal is as much a product of Western society as he is of a dysfunctional manifestation of Tibetan Buddhism and its traditions. And that's not to forgive him or excuse his behavior, but it's just to say as always, that the simple reading, one way or the other, always robs us of a certain understanding which might actually allow us to move forward. Sure. So 
Let's say this, just one more thing about peak experiences. I think that peak experience is actually a, a wonderful thing and actually a healthy part of a society. And I would suggest that the sort of Dionysian need for renewal and reinvigoration of the individual within a collective in which some sense of participation and meaning is shared is fundamental to any healthy society. And I think it's interesting, again, to make one more comment about the, the far left and the far right. They, they both seem to be different expressions of the puritanical urge to rid us of certain possibilities of experience, thought and emotion. Um, they seem both obsessed in their more extreme manifestations with the idea of purity in a way that's very religious. And I tend to be anti that kind of religious. And at that point, I tend to be more uh, a humanist, but in the sense of promoting our basic, rich, complex, messy humanity. And I think the peak experiences need to be reframed, much like um, other religious or spiritual experiences. How do I want to say this in a way that makes sense? I have an inbuilt suspicion of any attempt to fix anything in any way. And therefore, when I see teachers talk about, ah, it's this, religious experience is that, the practice is this, it must be this. Whenever I hear the modal verbs roll out, right, all I hear are beliefs and assumptions and the need to fossilize something for personal mm -hmm. gain or for fixating a personal vision. I know that presents problems, and I'm saying that primarily as a practitioner and a commentator, not as somebody who would say that's a great basis for the establishment of a new form or a radically invigorated form of Buddhism. I'm putting it out there because that's, that's something that has saved me as a basic principle from playing all of the dysfunctional games that I see around me. And it's also meant loss. I mean, I, I think at various points in my life, economically, I, I probably should have invented a, my own cult. <laughs> We all have that fantasy, Matthew, come on. It sounds like such fun. <laughs> I actually don't want one. I just think it would have been economically a sensible strategy. Right. <laughs> I didn't do that. And one of the reasons was you know, not because of some moral high grounding, <laughs> uh, which I, I can't make any claims to, I'm afraid, but the recognition that there's something deeply suspicious about that kind of behavior and that if I were to get sidelined into any of it, I would miss what I find attractive about engaging it you know, still with, with something like the Buddhist practice and theory. Well, what's the point of saying all that? Well, well one, it's, a, it's kind of a, a long-winded and, in a sense, a different kind of response to the question about what it means to be a practitioner. Um, and it brings up the question of what it means to have peak experience and how you would cultivate those. Finally, if I link that to the notion of enlightenment, well, I don't know if you listened to our last episode with Mr. Wright, in it which we, we talked about the topic of Buddhist enlightenment, right? I've spoken about it with Daniel Ingram in the past too. It's kind of been a background topic, which I think inevitably has to be brought up with different types of people. Again, what I find fascinating about claims about achievement, accomplishment, and progress on the path is what does that do for the individual within their social yes. standing and their sense of self as individuals? I've often made this point, which I think gets passed over superficially, but actually is incredibly important for Buddhist teachers and practitioners is what does it mean or what kind of impact does it have on the individual if they make claims about progress? At the initial level, it's easy to make a superficial judgment about self-importance, power, and again, uh, the potential for producing a cult-like environment. The question I think that I started off with when I started approaching Buddhism uh, critically and have continued with throughout is, what's the payoff? What is the payoff of making that claim? 
And the claim can be any claim whatsoever. But at any point, if a teacher or a practitioner is attempting to fix something、mm. in the way they conceptualize what is taking place, what has taken place, if they're elaborating a belief, that's basically what they're doing. What do they get out of it? What do they lose by doing so? And what do they deny? That's terrible in the sense that what does it leave us with? But it does bring <laughs> bring up issues about what claims can you make as a、mm. teacher? And I would say that someone like Ken McLeod, I've got a lot of time for Ken McLeod, and his his writing's been very useful to me. But I think his current situation, in a sense, is a response to what I've just said. It's a response to you know. Shit! What do I do? What do I do now? I recognise that all of these claims and all of these investments in identities and beliefs are, in fact, a challenge on the way. Are, in fact, a retreat from the challenges of practice when you make certain types of change within yourself. And those certain certain types of changes can be manifested or turned into a claim about yourself, but they can also be the recognition that you're actually just dissolving another. Set of internal mechanisms for attaching yourself to an ideal and an idea and an experience of selfhood in the world, and I would argue that the vast majority of spiritual practitioners, Buddhist teachers and otherwise, are doing exactly that, in spite of their claims about themselves. Which again is why some of the keys that Glenn brings to Buddhism in his acerbic and sometimes aggressive manner. Are so so useful and so profoundly important in a way that so few Buddhists in the West, I think, are fully comprehended.、Uh, I, I agree. Yeah, I also have mixed feelings about it because I do think that it's good that people like Daniel Ingram are coming out and saying, "Well, you know, yeah, I think I'm enlightened according to the tradition, and this is how it went.、Uh, this is what I experienced, and this is how it fits with the tradition." I mean, I, I, I do prefer that to to a lot of what goes on in. Say things like the Thai forest tradition. I don't know if you ever listen to Tanisaro Biku, but、um, there, there's often, you know, it's dropped. Like, well, you know, there was this teacher, and people say he was an an, an arhant, and I, I kind of really hate this phrase. People say he was an arhant because it, it's it's on the one hand catering to the ideas in the tradition that people aren't really allowed to talk about that, so it's all kind of just hearsay. But it's also taken advantage of the fact that saying something like that is very powerful and brings a lot of power into the tradition and brings more money and things like that. And so there's a lot of room room for abuse of of that as well.、Um, I I just think that I think that people should speak openly about these, but I think that the people who are listening to them should have massive bullshit detectors and be really willing to question them and challenge them. Does that happen? I don't know. I mean. Something like the the um the, the website that that Daniel Ingram runs. There's probably a lot of very uncritical thinkers there who just take everything on face value. But I'm sure there are there are other people who do challenge him on it. And certainly he came across as a, a really cool guy when he came on the podcast and ha- has his own questions about it. I would I would think and is open to being questioned on it. I don't think you could really ask for much more than that. I think that people do need to start talking about these things. I agree with that, and I think what you've just done again is is identify institutional factors. Institutionally, I don't think it's just bad. I think it's the inevitable consequence of institutional demands that a figurehead or a teacher ends up being perceived in a certain way, and I think that's greater than 
the person themselves and whether the person themselves can recognize that and actually engage with that critically or meaningfully in a way that may liberate themselves, first of all, because it kind of has to start there, then the followers in terms of a form of communication with them. And then the institution itself is, is another question altogether. And that question doesn't go away. What's the payoff between establishing institutions and form? We could actually put this in a, a dialectic of form and emptiness or formlessness and a solidification of things. To what degree do we necessarily have to make trade-offs in order to produce structures that can meaningfully and successfully provide infrastructure, resources and so forth, and an attraction, especially in today's attention ecology, that will bring people in? Um, how do we trade that off with being honest and being critical? And we have to remind ourselves that the ability to think critically about institutions and roles and identities and power these are uh, intellectual thinking tools that we've had for less than 100 years that didn't mm. exist before, right? I mean, this kind of macro critique and perspective comes about through developments in the 20th century. And so it did not exist. And we're still not really, let's say, uh, fully on board with much of it. Definitely not. It reminds me a bit of teaching, the, the teaching connection and what we what we talked about, how ideas from teaching can inform your Buddhism. And it's like it's like a language student. They might know a grammar point, but they've the, the, the old habits that they've got from when they didn't know it and they were doing the wrong thing. This has if you let's bring in your word energy again, it has a certain momentum that just doesn't go away. And it takes a very long time for that awareness to actually transform into a new habit and for fluency to develop. So, I mean, there are so many unbelievably rich ideas in the intellectual field over the past hundred years that have barely infiltrated our culture. We still tend to think in this uh, Descartes, Cartesian way, right? Yep. Um, you know, we're still very much stuck with that way of viewing ourselves as a mind sort of floating in a body, all of the psychophysical, somatic ideas haven't really penetrated popular culture very much at all. So these things take a really long time. I think we'll still be thinking in very Cartesian ways a hundred years from now. I was thinking a little bit about like the, the latest generation, which is, you might say it's a generation of, uh, that is submerged in social contact, mm. right? And that disrupts or may disrupt in many ways the Cartesian dualism that you're right uh, comes down to us today. I was going to say, who, who was the guest that you had a few a few months ago? European guy. And he talked about his students when you mentioned about how phone culture was kind of destroying modern society. And then he had this different take on it. He was very interesting about young people, I thought. That was uh, Yves uh, Sitton. Oh, that, he was a very cool guy. Yeah, I liked that podcast. He, he he definitely looked at it pretty differently because it's very easy, and I, I tend to do it as well. I have this sort of knee-jerk like, oh, God. I mean, just the other day I was saying to my students, you know, I really think it was better before we had smartphones. I'm as addicted to my smartphone as the next person, but I but I, but I, but I miss those pre-smartphone days. Uh, you, you fell into that old man trap. <laughs> Lecturing the youth. <laughs> On the old golden days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously, um, I just turned 44. I can feel it's getting stronger day by day. Mm, scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You see, that's, that's practice material right there. Yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Why don't we bring the conversation back to the the notion of right. enlightenment briefly? Because I think it, it's such sure. a fun topic and sure. people kind of love it. Because isn't isn't it the big payoff at the end is going to come at some point? Well, exactly. I mean, to me, um, I, th- I think that definitely it's not what it's cracked up to be. But it doesn't it doesn't bother me at all. One thing I would say about my practice, there are a lot of uh, areas of my practice that I think are lacking. I don't have a teacher, for example, and sometimes I think that would be a really good thing to have. And probably my meditation is a much stronger part of my practice than daily mindfulness or morality or whatever. But one thing I don't even despite all the questions that I've been asking these last few years, and a lot of them um, influenced heavily by reading the stuff on Glenn's site, at no point have I wanted to stop meditating, say, because even if I don't really have much belief in enlightenment anymore. And I'm not sure how much I ever did. To me, it's just such an enjoyable thing to do. Um, it's an end in itself, really. So what, what would be one of the, the most, let's say, prominent questions that you desire an answer to? Right. Well, we've, maybe we've talked about this a little bit. I do think this is interesting. In what ways have you experimented or tried to innovate in your meditation practice? You know, to what extent do you try to yeah, say, okay, this is a sort of time-honored practice. I got to do it like this. Do you experiment a lot? Do you do different meditation techniques? And then how do you kind of decide what's working and what's not? I mean, I find that kind of thing quite interesting. I'll be honest, Gavin, for listeners who don't know, I actually asked Gavin to to put together a couple of ideas about what to talk about, but he actually sent me a couple of questions yesterday. And I looked through them um, this morning. And when I was out this morning, there was one that I actually looked at, right. the question you've just asked. And I realized that's actually the most difficult one for me to answer. Ah. And I think the problem is, is that in answering it, you need a certain amount of context. This is the problem I have here, Gavin, is that when I'm speaking to somebody, I like to speak to that person rather than just present some prefabricated idea that I have. I tend to change my language or the information that I prioritize depending on the person in front of me. And on a podcast, it's difficult to know what would be relevant or useful to the people listening in. So I think I should probably make one personal point and then say how that, how that would look in terms of innovation of practice or what kind of practice I might engage in and why that might be useful. So as I've kind of been hinting at throughout our, our chat today, I'm not a practitioner of you know, Mahasi Sayadaw. I don't do noting. The type of practice that I've been gravitated towards over the, over the years has been you know, Mahamudra, Dzogchen style practice. I mentioned again this ontology, this um, process relational ontology. Just to remind listeners, you know, because I don't like to use too much technical language, if you don't know what that means, it basically means that it's shifting the way we think about the world from being something out there and something in here to the fact that we are immersed in the world, that our existence actually occurs or is made possible by relationship or relationships with the natural environment as well as fellow humans and other animals and inanimate beings. And uh, actually ex- consciousness or the experience of being is always in movement or process. Now, any good Buddhist listening to that will say, yeah, I can get on with that. It sounds like interdep- interdependence and no self. And I'd say, yeah, that, that, that makes sense too. But to me, if you take that seriously as a way of actually phenomenologically experiencing selfhood or being a person, and then your relationship with the world, or the experience of being in relationship, then certain interesting possibilities or potentials start to emerge, as well as certain types of challenge. 
So if we look at something like Mahamudra, which if I get rid of that word, we'd say, you know, non-dual. And if we get rid of non-dual, what do we mean? For me, practice means to dissolve whatever it is in my conscious experience, which seeks to resist, to manipulate, or to switch off from whatever is immediate and whatever is emergent within my being and within the environment I inhabit. So where does innovation take place there, if any? And I'm, I'm not making claims to be doing that. But I would certainly say innovation at the intellectual level or in the reflexive level, or thinking about what I'm doing or what's taking place when I do, would be more linguistic and conceptual. In terms of the, the practices, I, I think I'm, I'm not doing anything that's particularly innovative. But the way I understand it and I frame it is a product of the time and age that I live in and of the language I speak, and the sort of conceptual tools I have available to me. So instead of thinking that I'm focusing on the breath, for example, as someone might do, or sitting for an hour, I might actually do very short periods of meditation for 20 minutes twice a day, in which actually there's, I would say, a thick continuity with what happens before and after the timer goes on and off, in that it's just, it's, it's re- it's re-establishing the space of relaxation and loosening of anything within my, let's say, my emotions or my mental state or my self-awareness, which again is manipulating, which would be projecting outwards, resisting, which would be projecting inwards, or switching off, which would be indifference. So that fits with the basic Buddhist model, right, of attachment, aversion, and in fact, many Buddhist books or teachings ignore the middle one which is, you know, boredom or sleepiness or indifference. So I would say that's kind of what's going on. And so, you know, when I, I get coaching clients or I have conversations with people, the innovation tends to be about the way I would conceptualize that and talk about it. And in terms of other types of innovation, well, does this apply or not? You tell me what you think. But it's recognizing that the experience of consciousness within practice, whether formulaic and sitting, or whether it's just, you know, waking up to, to go in your sleep and everything that happens in between. The extra element would be I pay a lot of attention to the way um, there's a relationship between the social and the individual within those spaces. The environmental, well, in terms of the my home or the room where I tend to practice, or, you know, the streets I walk, or the classroom I'm teaching in. And then the relational in terms of to what degree is it possible for me to maintain that quality of, of openness, of relaxation, which are terms you might find in a modern reading of, of Mahamudra practice. And what is it about the characteristics of a given relationship that allow that to be done with ease or not? And to what degree are those a manifestation of some internal issue that, or, or material that needs to be relaxed or worked on in a, in a more explicit manner or, or not? Or whether it's a reflection of, of wider issues that are a manifestation of cultural tensions that are shared. So, for example, with my wife, you know, I see that there are certain moments in which there may be a certain experience of tension or of friction that's felt or is expressed verbally. And if I relax with that, then that becomes practice material. Then it's very often the case that these are almost sort of archetypal manifestations of the, the never-ending tension or friction, if we were to use a more, a more interesting word, between men and women in couples <laughs> who've been together for 15 years plus 
Or, right, I might see it with my son, whereby I notice that there's actually a part of me which would very much like to to stop being a parent for three months so I can bugger off and, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> walk from one end of New Zealand to the other. I guess this is about as hippie as I get these days. My view is that we are wed to each other in a way that's not new age or woo-woo, and that all of the material that makes up us isn't us, and that we are, in a sense, condemned or required to process that material in our lives. So in that sense, I, I guess I kind of have a slightly spiritual uh, view that we are kind of in this together, we're kind of working on all this material together, and that as individual practitioners, we are as well as being individuals, and we shouldn't lose that, we are conduits for the collective historical social material that's moving yeah. through our species. And therefore, any attempt to isolate ourselves from that is actually a form of dysfunctional practice, atomization, isolation, and so forth. So I don't know if that's a good answer to it, the, the question, but that's probably the best I can do right now. Oh, it sounds... Sounds good. I mean, there are a few things. Obviously, as a teacher, you get a lot of opportunity to work on that interrelational dynamics. And it made me think again about that Gregory Kramer stuff. I really think you should check that out. I haven't, haven't done a little bit of that sort of thing, as I said, very informally with other people. I'll just tell you what we would do. This is one of the things that I would consider um, a, a bit different from what, what most people are doing in their practice. Um, I would meditate together with uh, a friend. I remember we actually talked about using, in, a, in one of our email exchanges before, about using something like Black Mirror, you know, meditate right. together with a, with a few friends, uh, watch an episode of Black Mirror, and then try to keep that meditative vibe or maybe meditate again for a short bit after watching it, and then start to discuss the themes that came up and just paying a lot of attention to things like when you start to get impatient when someone else is speaking and you want to make your point and having to hold back and the, the way that the feelings that arise when you're listening to someone's answers, um, how, how they react, how you feel you're doing in the discussion compared to other people. There's, there's so much room for practice material that comes up there. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really great to do this kind of thing. I've also done it with um, Dhamma talks as well. So just meditated, listened to a Dhamma talk with a friend and then reacted to the talk and then inevitably it would just start to become something much more personal where we would start to talk about some problems or whatever that were going on in our life. Quite a therapeutic kind of thing, really. But again, just, just trying to keep keep that awareness. And as you said, become aware of what, what was it you said? Resistance and projection and... Resistance, manipulation and indifference or switching uh, off. All oh, right, right, right. So basically, yeah, be trying to become aware of these things. Yeah, but just not in your own personal silent meditation practice in dialogue. I think Gregory Kramer, one of the things that he said is that we have so much emphasis on individual sitting meditation in our practice. But if we look at suffering, all, almost all of our sources of suffering are to do with interrelational things. So why are we practicing in this extremely solitary way most of the time? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, 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 agreed. The experience of individuality in itself as well can be taken as a meditation object. What's the purpose, I think, of certain types of basic um, rudimentary practices? There is a need, I think, for people to build the capacity. Capacity is a word that mm. someone like Kim McLeod would use quite a bit. 
um, certain types of practices, build certain types of capacity. And I would suggest that um, all of the the major changes that have come about through my commitment to certain types of meditation practice, although mm. I could have interpreted some of those in spiritual terminology, the gain or the payoff long term has been that it's created enough space in my own experience of being alive that I'm capable of sitting with a whole variety of different experiences. Yes, yes, yes. And not reacting to them but also not hiding from them, resisting them, manipulating them, or switching off. Yes. Once you've developed enough capacity to do that, then it's a case of, right, good, explore. Take, take meditation as much as the development of capacity as an explorative space for coming to develop insight. I mean, insight is a word that's used in Buddhism a lot, but what does it mean to gain insight? Is it just to reproduce Buddhist truths? Mm. Or is it to come to understand the reality of your existence and those around you. And those are quite different things. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've said this before, I think that meditation on death is extremely underrated. I mean, if you really take the, mm. the observation in, in various Buddhist teachings that death really actually can happen like now, <laughs> and you don't really don't know if it's mm -hmm. going to happen in the next five minutes or not, that does actually compel a certain type of rethinking about goals and the project of practice in itself. But not only does it do that, it creates a new kind of context in which your experience of being a person will resist, will desire to manipulate, and will switch off. That's the point where I think a lot of Western Buddhists who've, who, who are going for the meditation-only school of practice have missed the point. Much of the good stuff about Buddhism traditionally is not its practices, it's its theory. And if we take something like death yeah. seriously, then that should really scare the shit out of you, first of all, if not terrify you. And if it's not, you're probably not engaging with it fully enough. And if it doesn't actually produce <laughs> yes. any real-world consequences, I'm afraid you've probably not done enough of it. <laughs> because actually, that's the greatest fear we have for most of us. It's primal. It's for deep. Sure. It's species deep. And it goes back to the beginning of our existence. We don't want to die. I had a, a chap I was speaking to in, in a coaching dynamic for, for several months. And at one point I said to him, I said, look, stop thinking about it as death. Think of it as ceasing to exist or as termination of your consciousness. Because death just seemed to be romanticized. Yet again, it's another term that we can go, yeah, but... And in the background, there's always that Judeo-Christian Judeo tradition saying, yeah, okay, believe all that Buddhist stuff, but you know, just in case there could be an afterlife, right? <laughs> and yeah, you could interpret re rebirth as a sort of, you know, variation on heaven, right? And the soul, go for that too. In the background, that stuff just lingers, and it lingers to the point where I'm kind of suspicious of people who make claims that, no, no, I've kind of done that. I'm kind of free of Christian thought. Right. I'm kind of free of Judeo-Christian thought. And I'm like, yeah, really? I was going to say, are you free of your, are, are you free of your earlier... Because I assume when you were a more traditional Tibetan practitioner, you did believe in reincarnation. Oh, yeah. And things, well, sorry, rebirth, right? I mean, not that I really get what the distinction is. Um, I, I mean, the, the whole concept of rebirth in Buddhism is so problematic to me, um, I'm sure to yourself as well. But do you still find that you, you, did, you did believe in it at one point, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Right, right. And is there still some doubt? I mean, do you kind of think, well, maybe maybe there is. And, you know, you get these weird stories that that guy writes in his books, right, about whatever new child has been discovered somewhere who's a reincarnation, mm -hmm. right? 
Yeah, I fully believed. I was, you know, signed up, card-carrying believer in reincarnation. Again, just to continue to be a little bit difficult, I think what's more interesting is the sorts of questions that come up once you start to discard the belief in an afterlife, which at the end of the day, whether you believe in heaven or you believe in reincarnation, I don't think it really matters um, whether you have those beliefs or not. To reiterate a point I made before, what consequences does holding those beliefs or discarding them have on your experience of subjectivity and of consciousness? Hmm. How does it actually impact one way or another the way you act and behave in the world? Yes, I know what you mean. That's what I'm more interested in, because I think at the end of the day, beliefs are interesting. They can be thoroughly entertaining. I mean, you know, you can carry out several lives being entertained by a belief in reincarnation. <laughs> but um, if you take something like death seriously, the question becomes, what practice produces an experience in which that impacts you sufficiently to destabilize the assumptions you have about the continuity of existence? That's a question worth asking. Then the question about what actually happens after death is a secondary point and a minor point in my view, because it doesn't really matter in the sense that we don't know, we have no way of knowing, and therefore I remain agnostic. And I don't right. remain agnostic in the sense of that kind of nice secular middle class agnosticism where I can kind of feel good about myself because I don't really believe that stuff. That's superstition, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a rational scientific thinker. Yes. That's a, that's a game, again, which I think is suspect and needs uh, critiquing. What I can know is that death definitely happens. It's absolutely true that I could die in any moment. I've no idea mm. how and when it will happen. And based on the health issues I have, it will probably come far sooner than I would like. <laughs> right. Oh. Yeah. So the question becomes, how do I live well with complete acceptance of that without manipulating it, without resisting it, <laughs> without being indifferent to it? And that's, to me, uh, a line of inquiry which becomes productive of something meaningful. Just to bring it back to ideas of practice and the social implications of doing this stuff and taking it very seriously. In engaging with that, I've become a far better father and husband and better teacher. Mm. And that I'm not entertaining some of the escapist fantasies I used to entertain a great deal. They've gone. I bet. Mm. And yeah, so you've been reading up quite a few of these books on nihilism, right? What is it? Nihil and Unbound? Is that the book? Tempted to read it and gave up. <laughs> uh, okay, right. I've got a copy of that, but I haven't got around to it yet. Yeah. So um, this seems to be definitely a direction that your practice has taken recently. Have there been times that you then said, oh, well, so what's the point anyway? I'm just going to die. I'm going to be a rotting corpse. Has that technique ever challenged your practice? or made it more vulnerable? There was a moment where I read a couple of things that Tom Pepper had written over at Speculative uh -huh. Non-Buddhism. That was the kind of nail on the coffin for my belief in an afterlife and some of the remaining New Age fantasies that I was still holding on to. Do you, do you remember which articles they were? I've read quite a bit of his stuff. Um, I actually don't. I think it was something to do with Nagarjuna Right, and right. one of his pieces on sort of destroying the notion of a soul or an Atman. It was one of those pieces, most likely, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, so maybe it's the full full strength and Atman or something, maybe, is it? It might have been that one, yeah. It might have been. I, I found that a really great article. Yeah, that influenced me a lot. Amazing article. It was fantastic. 
I will make a quick confession here. My entire experience of the speculative non-Buddhism website was therapeutic. <laughs> mm. For me, it was practice. And yeah. this is why I'm such a big fan of it. I mean, I would sit with the consequences of some of the thought. It was terrifying. I mean, I remember going through, I think I had a weekend. I, I think actually my wife and son were away. <laughs> and I'd read this stuff, you know, until like two in the morning. Yeah. And the next day I was like, shit. I mean, that's a major piece of my identity. That's got to go. Yes. I think I did like a, a, an improv, improvised weekend retreat in which I sat with the consequences of that. And again, doing what I described before. Don't resist, don't manipulate, don't be indifferent. Mm, mm, mm. And that produced terror. <laughs> Hence the point I made about death. And why? Because I think that became a conduit for engaging more fully with the consequences that I spoke about before. Just to, to keep going in the direction mm. I like to go in. I think that nihilism itself becomes a form of refuge. And I think it becomes a form of refuge for a certain type of intellectualism and a certain avoidance of certain types of uncomfortable questions, which is one of the reasons perhaps why I haven't been stuck in that place. I think that nihilism is actually, it's a, a necessary juncture on any kind of path of self-inquiry and that you have to go through it. Buddhism in the West has generally uh, circumnavigated it. it. Certainly has which is why it suffers from some of its uh, dysfunctions. I don't think I'd agree with either Glenn or Tom on, or uh, many of the intellectuals who are part of the sort of the new wave of nihilism. I wouldn't agree with their consequences. What does it mean to entertain a fantasy about the fact that in two million years the earth is going to cease to exist and everything on it? So what? What's that got to do with you now? Yeah. What does that mean to actually believe that? That's actually a belief. We more or less know that that's a fact, but at the end of the day, just as we, we know that God most likely doesn't exist, I think all we can do is be agnostic about both, in the sense that I can accept the consequences right now, in this body, in this lifetime, that the earth will cease to exist. But I cannot say whether or not other humans exist on other planets, and whether there is, in some odd way, some sort of shared collective conscious project. I actually can't say that. I can be agnostic about it. But what I can do is recognize that within my experience of selfhood, I invest one way or the other, there's a payoff in both, and that if I hold on to one of those ideas, it actually becomes a belief, which actually solidifies some experience of selfhood. Mm -hmm. That's a slightly roundabout way of answering the question, but to my view, nihilism is the opposite of an idea of the soul. It's its twin, and therefore, automatically, it has to be dysfunctional if held on its own. Right. Therefore, what's the, the relational ground? I mean, some Westerners like to try and take forwards this, you know, the middle way philosophy. Again, I think that can be done uncritically and problematically. It can often be a game of, well, I can kind of do as I please. I can hang out. What they're actually saying <laughs> is, I will lean towards one way one day and then lean towards <laughs> the other on another. Or I'll keep 40% of the, the belief in reincarnation or something, and then I'll keep, you know, 60% of the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a game. It's, it's, a, it's a game of navigating the, tr the, the, the truth or the facts of our existence. On the other side of nihilism, to keep it relatively short, I would tend to agree with someone like David Chapman. Meaning is everywhere. Mm. It's temporal, it's finite, and it's contextually based. And therefore, our existence, mm. which is finite, <laughs> you know, contextualized and based in finitude and imminence, is the same. And the question becomes then, what is the quality of the relationship that emerges or that I can sustain with these kinds of thoughts 
their implications, their consequences, and then the temptation within myself to hold on or to fixate onto a position as a consequence. Does that make sense? Definitely, yeah. I think um, it reminds me a bit of something that Tanisaro Biku said when uh, he would recommend couples to uh, do the body parts, uh, visualizing body parts, right? Taking taking the body apart um, and they would worry that, oh, you know, this is going to make me completely lose interest in my partner. It's going to be bad for my relationship. And he would say, well, it's definitely not because you've just got those really strong desires there. They're not going to be wiped out. They're just going to be tempered a little bit. And I think it's the same with nihilism and meaning. We have such a tendency to produce meaning anyway. And we, as animals, we're just programmed to care about our life and the people around us. So engaging in these nihilistic practices is not going to lead to some kind of, you know, suicide, suicidal ideations or whatever. It's just going to, um, it's, it's just going to balance out some of the extremes go towards the other direction. Mm-hmm. So it's very healthy. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that contemporary Buddhism needs a hell of a lot more of that. Not this sort of, you know, smile and have a nice day kind of thing. Yeah, or the latest 10 rules to five ways to, you know, three magical keys for <laughs> all, all of those are forms of refuge, you know, every single one of them. Mm. How is any kind of practice or theoretical assumption a form of refuge from the immediacy of your life and your existence? And that, that's a practice question people can take and run with from, from the get-go until they die. I mean, you never, you never cease to find something meaningful in terms of a response to that practice question. And it's the demand as well, I think, of um, a revolt against anti-intellectualism. It has to start with certain types of foundational questions which keep us on the straight and narrow and permit us to have a creative critical engagement with any kind of thought and practice. And any time refuge is, is sought, it's, it's a form of retreat. I mean, listen to the words. I mean, just take the words out of the Buddhist context. Refuge, what does that mean? Protection from what? What are you hiding from? Mm. That's what refuge is. What is retreat? What are you stepping away from? What are you stepping back Mm. from or to? There's a place and a time for both of those things to happen. But if that's the basis of your practice, if that's the core of your practice, then in my view, your practice is most likely a form of escapism or maintenance or self-management. Right. That's where yeah. I think I resonate most strongly with Glenn. It's like people keep missing this. I mean, he's got his critique, but what he's actually asking from the beginning to the end is you need to t- actually take Buddhism more seriously. You need to take what it's saying more seriously. Mm. The inability to do that means that you're not actually practicing Buddhism. Mm. What would happen if you were to take some of these concepts more seriously? Even a concept like interdependence, I mean, the first step any Western Buddhist can do, can take, in order to start to reinvigorate practice is to find five synonyms for that word. Not one of them can be in Sanskrit or Pali, and then make sure none of them Mm -hmm. are in any form of spiritual terminology. Find another word for it. What does it do, both Mm. intellectually and experientially for you, when you start to think about it from that position, through that lens, if we want to use that trendy term? Sounds like a good practice. Ah, it's a great practice. That's the kind of thing I would recommend. Mm. Uh, It's the kind of thing I've been doing for years. Mm. At least it's interesting, (laughs) if if nothing else. Mm. 
Now look, we, we, we've been blabbering on for a couple of hours sure. here. We should we should round up with something. Yes, I think I think we should, yeah. I think there's maybe one more question I'd like to ask you, yeah. So uh, just now you mentioned this anti-intellectualism and that's something that you've often talked about, right? And that's the whole theme of the podcast this year anyway. So I'm just wondering uh, how you balance your anti, anti-intellectualism thing with your shamanistic leanings, which is, is very steeped, right, in that uh, non-intellectual approach, at least as I understand it. Am I wrong about that or? No, you're not wrong. The shamanic mm. world, in fact, is a topic I've avoided on the podcast <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, though, is that it's it's something that's very much in motion and change at the moment. And my relationship with the the organized groups in the shamanic world that I've participated in for, for many years has changed a lot. I've, I've left quite oh, a lot of it behind. Okay. And... I'm sort of undecided about what to do about that. And I don't want to talk about that much more than that. That's probably, there's probably not much more I could say that would actually be useful. But I can, <laughs> okay, say, right. I can say something else that, that would be relevant to the question and, and perhaps connected to what we've just been talking about. How do I frame it? Well, this is the context. This is the starting point. I frame all of Buddhism, all of philosophy as much as I know about it, and all of the various religious and spiritual traditions, including the New Age, and all of the, the, the more contemporary dysfunctional manifestations of, of different types of desires for transcendence or immanence. I view them all as forms of human practice from the get-go, and because I don't believe in any sort of final goal or ultimate answer, although I certainly see some as being better than others, or more effective in certain types of contexts than others, which is perhaps a more useful way of thinking about it. I don't tend to be dismissive of New Age practices anymore. I just think that they need a heavy dose of critique, but that that critique could potentially liberate almost any kind of spiritual practice, New Age, Buddhist or shamanic, so that it could become an Mm. interesting arena for exploration, both individually and in groups. Equally, maybe the the, um, shamanistic practices could reinvigorate the drier, more intellectual things, right? Potentially. That's theoretically true, but practically speaking, mm, there are various issues in the shamanic world. I did make a comment once that Mm -hmm. there's a book called... um, I think I know the book you're talking about. Yeah, I forget the name. It's called The Beauty of the Primitive. Zanaminsky is the author. And it's basically like... um, the companion piece about the shamanic and spiritual world to David McMahon's The Making of Buddhist Modernism. That's right. Yeah, you know, I think I actually read, I read that book on your recommendation. Okay. Oh, good. Um, yeah, there were some interesting things in it, yeah. One thing it does is it charts an almost identical history to that of contemporary Western Buddhism. So what does that tell me, at least? It tells me that the kinds of desires expressed... Mm in certain times and spaces were such that it drove certain types of people with certain types of motivations to gravitate towards any form of exotic religious or spiritual practice in search of something, mm. a, a new kind of meaning. And that's, that's nothing new. I'm not saying anything new here at all. Because I have a, a profound love and care and appreciation for our basic shared humanity, I guess I kind of read those things with a sympathetic view these days. 
And therefore, just to reiterate the point I made before, you, you could almost sort of um, requalify, recalibrate, revitalize any form of practice to almost any kind of end if you wanted to. So what's the relevance to shamanism and the question you gave about anti-intellectualism? Well, I went through a tandem experience with Buddhism. I went through the same experience with the shamanic world too. And it produced more questions in that arena than it did in Buddhism, which is arguably more easily adaptable to uh, a non-woo-woo, non-spiritual, more rational, Mm. humanistic reading of the whole thing. But at the same time, I've also betrayed uh, a particular interest in concepts such as energy and uh, an interest in the the Tibetan Buddhist world more than others. And therefore, I tend to view the human being as, as something we haven't quite fully quantified and may never achieve. Let's be honest, we still don't know what consciousness is in spite of what Daniel Dennett says. I think that it's true that it, it, it necessarily is dependent upon the material, so a human body and a physical brain. But I think it's also true mm-hmm. that there's a tapestry of experiential reality that, that people have been experiencing since human beings have been able to articulate themselves that continues to these days, which I think we could develop a vernacular for that would be compatible with a certain scientific and materialist reading of the world. But I think consciousness is a complex issue. And because we don't have an answer to it, it means that we are stuck in other areas of conversation too. And all I can say is that from an ethical perspective in terms of philosophy, in terms of what it means to produce, sustain, and maintain certain types of human practice, we can allow ourselves a little bit more wiggle room, but we can also be critical and and see what happens if we engage with certain types of practices without entertaining the beliefs which traditionally accompanied them. I think that we are compelled to engage with meaning as a form of performance, and that if we do that consciously, we can do so in ways that are interesting, creative, and productive of certain potentials or certain types of experience. I think it is useful to entertain the idea, for example, that the human being could be made up of, for example, five aspects, which is a model I tend to use, and that acts as a nice counterbalance to Buddhism. So um, that's something I take from the shamanic world. The human has five principal basic aspects. There are five basic elements. I'm not saying that's scientifically true. I'm saying that if we need some kind of system to demarcate our human existence, then that's a pretty valid one. It's minimally transcendent. It's minimally demanding of us in terms of belief. And it's highly practical and uh, doesn't require anybody to sign up to a belief system or tradition. So, you know, how does that work? Well, it, it's based on wheels instead of, um, let's say, a linear model. Uh, any, any wheel type uh, presentation of a teaching or a model actually fits very well with an ecological view. And it fits in well with the process relational um, framework for, for making sense of ourselves in the world. And the idea as well there is that um, a wheel as a symbolic teaching tool becomes a plane rather than a hierarchy. So instead of saying somebody's got first, second, third path, is an arhat or enlightened or is superior in one way or the other, you would say that a person can be experientially and relationally developed or mature in each of the five aspects. If they're lacking maturity or development in one of the others, then that's actually a reminder that they are imbalanced in some way in their, in their capacity to express their development or their breakthrough in, in meditation practice in the world that they inhabit. It's very Ken Wilber-esque, maybe? It is a bit, yeah. It is a bit. 
We need models of development. You can't get away from that, right? There is maturation. We, we change perspectives, as we mentioned, you know, when turning 40. Mm. But we can take that and we can put it on uh, a plane instead of uh, a hierarchy. And that way, instead of it being a superiority above another, it actually becomes something else. It becomes a richness or a more mature or less mature or a more developed or less developed or a more complete or more inclusive mm-hmm. or less complete and less inclusive means for understanding where value may lie in how we quantify some sense of stability, progress, change, breakthrough in, in, in terms of something like a spiritual practice. So how does that fit with the anti-intellectualism? Well, I take a model like that as long as, as with others, and there's a certain self-consciousness, which is postmodern and slightly ironic, but it becomes a means for potentially deconstructing, but also constructing at the same time but allowing each of those to coexist so that the outcome is actually a form of creativity and potentiality, which fits in with some of the ways I've been talking, I guess, in our conversation today. Mm-hmm. So it's not anti-anything. It's actually a practical means for coming to terms with the fact that spiritual practices, whether rational or irrational, produce meaning and produce meaningful outcomes, as well as dysfunctional mm-hmm. ones. And that as yet, we don't have a perfectly reliable, rational, scientific set of means for producing those same set of outcomes or potentialities. Yeah, I like the optimism of that as yet. <laughs> Very optimistic. Gavin, we're going to have to yes. finish up. We've been blabbering for two and a half hours here. <laughs> yeah, Matthew, good talking to you. Definitely. And thanks again for the podcast. You know, it's really um, opened me up to so many different ideas and thinkers over the past few years. I've really enjoyed it. Great. That's his purpose. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad it's done that for you. We were sinking like the sun is destined to While still on fire We were sinking like the sun is destined to While still on fire Keep the fire burning, baby Keep that glowing through the night No one should be able to just blow it away what we had was no
Destined to was still on fire. 